Hello and welcome to episode 5 of season 1 of the Memory Leak podcast, a weekly show which features interviews with game developers. My name is Rob Carter and my guest today is Soren Johnson, co-founder, creative director, and CEO of Mohawk Games. Few people understand strategy game design and development like Soren Johnson. After obtaining a BA in history and a master's in computer science from Stanford, Soren went to work as a programmer and designer on Civilization III at Firaxis. He stayed there for seven years, and after Civilization III shipped, Soren led the design of Civilization IV. He later left to work at EA Maxis on Spore. He stayed at EA for over four years before departing for Zynga East. In 2013, Soren co-founded Mohawk Games. Mohawk is a small, independent studio which just released its first title, Offworld Trading Company, on Steam Early Access. Offworld is a competitive, economic, real-time strategy game where players manipulate a dynamic market to outearn their rivals. The response to Offworld on Early Access has been very positive. It's earned praise as a bold departure from combative, real-time strategy titles. On one hand, it's a curious new experience, but it makes perfect sense as a product of Soren's mind, an engaging strategy title that's simple to learn, but produces a huge variety of experiences. When he's not making games, Soren runs a blog called Designer Notes, as well as a podcast with the same name. Thanks for being here today, Soren. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. So you run, as I said, a podcast called Designer Notes, and it's, it's pretty similar to Memory Leak. You speak with designers about their career and their design philosophies, and I really like it, by the way. It's great to listen to. Cool. Thanks. Uh, you say Designer Notes is a podcast about why we make games and why people choose game design as a career. Um, you've done, I think, over 10 of these now after GDC, and I'm curious what you've found out about the underlying motivation or drive that it takes to, to get into this career path. Um, like what, what common attributes, if any, do all the designers that you speak with share? Yeah, I've done enough now that I'm starting to see some, some similarities. One thing I've seen on almost everyone I've talked to, I've, I've always asked at some point, because I, I start very early with like, what was the first game you remember playing? And, um, you know, did you, what did you, you know, did you play a lot of games when you were a kid? Did you, did you try to program? Did you try to design games? Maybe you made board games or something. Um, and you know, for a lot of those, for a lot of them, they did, they, maybe they ran, uh, maybe they were a DM for D and D sessions or they, you know, they made little games on their, you know, Amiga or their Commodore or something. Um, but whenever I asked them, like, did you think you wanted to be a video game designer or programmer or, or whatever, get into the industry? It's, it's just kind of like they had, they had no idea that was even possible. You know, that, that generally speaking, it just seemed like, um, you know, like so I think someone says like video games came from Japan and I didn't really know anything beyond that, basically. Like, you know, that's, that's the, the, that sort of sums up a lot of their, their opinions is that it just, it seemed, they just seemed to magically appear and it just, it, it seemed there was no obvious way to get from where they were to to making games. It seemed like just t- totally opaque, and it was it was bizarre because in, in many ways a lot of these people were pursuing paths that were basically perfectly setting themselves up to become video game developers. You know, they were playing a lot of games, they were learning to program, they were um, you know messing around with with uh, with board games and taking them apart and you know re, you know remaking games based off off of components and you know the exactly type of thing. But um, when once they got into college, they were I'm going to you know I'm going to major in chemistry or I'm going to major in um, you know engineering or English or history or whatever. Um, and it you know. Um, it wasn't necessarily clear to them what to what to do, and 
part of that I think might be because um, the generation I'm talking to tends to be on the older side, whereas nowadays I think uh, someone in their teens, uh, it's kind of very clear how to get into the game development, right? You just first of all, you could just start making games, right? You could actually distribute games, which was not possible way back when, um, you know, I grew up. So I don't know I, I that's that's the most common the most common theme I found throughout all the people I talked to. Yeah, you mentioned how different it is now. There's like um, game development and design programs at like major universities and the barrier to entry to creating your own stuff and distributing it is so low now. Um, I mean, it, it must just be a, a vastly different path now. At least that's the impression I get. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm still kind of coming to grips with what it you know like how many paths there are into into games and like what um and you know i get asked a lot all the time i mean i did uh, ask me anything recently and it seemed like the the most common question by far was how do i get into the video game industry and i don't i i don't really have good advice to give people on that regard i actually i think i have some pretty good advice if you are on a game if you're if you're on the game team and you want to become a game designer there are certain things you can do, like, for example, volunteer to work on the UI. That's something that often very few people want to work on. And But you know, once you start working on the UI, you are kind of by default a game designer, even though no one really realizes it. But, uh, but if you're just, you know, you're a guy, you know, you're a guy or a girl, and you're, um, you know, you dream of making video games, like, how do you, how do you make that happen? I mean, I think, you know, there's, you know, usually I would recommend the, um, you know, sort of the conservative path, which is, you know, get classic training in computer science or art so that you have a skill that makes you valuable, right? Like, I think that's, that's the, that's the, the safest path and, you know, try to work and, you know, try to get a job in the industry for a few years. You know, there, there are plenty of studios now who are always looking for smart people who have skills. Um, you know, if you can't do art and you can't do code, then that means you're going to have to find a way to, you know, do something that, that stands out on its own, which is possible, but you know, you're, you're making things, you're making things a lot harder for yourself or you're just giving yourself not, not much margin. And I, I feel like there's probably a lot of people who wash out who kind of like, you know, go that route, but you know, I mean, it, it's impossible to tell, you know, how successful those people tend to be. For sure. Um, I think a lot of people's paths into game development they they all seem to be non-standard. A lot of them. Maybe it's maybe it's changing now with all those college programs and things like that. But you know, you mentioned um, UI design, and I recognize that tip from um, a blog post on Designer Notes. And on that post, you also mentioned uh, AI programming mm-hmm. um, is good because it's it like you said it's um you can't extract it from the gameplay. You know, so by de- by default, if you're going to do the AI programming, you kind of have to know the design really well. Um, and I, I really like those those pieces of advice because you're you are making like a meaningful contribution to the content of the game, um, like as software. But then you also have to have a good understanding of design. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very typical for people who will go on and go into games that they kind of get they want to specialize in graphics programming, um, and that that will make you a very strong candidate for getting hired for sure. But if you want to do and it's awesome to just do graphics programming forever, right? Like that's a wonderful field. Um, but if your passion is for game design, like you know, you're, you're going to kind of get pigeonholed if you start working on graphics most of the time. Like you're not really going to get a chance to like, ex- you know, demonstrate skill as as a game designer. Yeah, definitely, definitely. 
So I, I'd like to bring it back to, um, I kind of structured my questions today, kind of like you do on designer notes, because I'd like to see, I'd like to see your responses to some of the same questions. So, um, what, what was your relationship like with games when you were a child? What were some of the, the formative game experiences you had when you were young? So the, the thing that changed my life for, in terms of, of games is when my, my parents bought us a Commodore 64, which was probably around 1982, 1983. And uh, at first, I, I think we just had a couple sort of random games uh, which of course were interesting to me, but then I, and it was kind of like the the influx of I, I guess what's now you could see as sort of the second wave of electronic arts titles kind of came through that really kind of like you know spoke to me of like wow there's something really special about this 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 machine so that is, this means stuff like uh, Lords of Conquest, Sky Fox, Adventure Construction Set, uh, and especially especially Seven Cities of Gold. That's the one that really stood, stands out from that that period where um, it was, you know, like it was generating a world inside of of you know my Commodore um, that you know that was different each time, and you know it it seemed deep. It seemed like it just it could just go on and on and on, and um, you know these random worlds generated kind of felt like our own worlds in a way, you know, like you see, you saw, you know, the, the rivers flowed in a natural way and the mountains looked, looked natural. And, um, the way that, you know, the tribes were, were situated seemed to make sense. And, um, it just, it seemed amazing. And I, I, I think I often forget, like when you, when you start up, up that game, I think it probably took four or five minutes to generate a world, um, which was kind of a, an impressive thing at the time as a kid, you're like, you sort of were imagining what was going on inside your computer. Um, so those were that was the sort of the wave of games that first um, really, you know, service really connected with me strongly. Um, and then from there, it was on to games like uh, Pirates, uh, Railroad Tycoon, SimCity. Uh, you know, these were these you know the very systematic games uh, were the ones that, that you know really strongly appealed to me. So a lot of those are strategy titles, right? Would you say you were drawn to that genre? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think I thought of it at the time, and I think even even when even before I joined uh, Firaxis, I didn't think necessarily that I was going to be you know basically spending my career working on strategy games. Um, I mean, I always loved. It's, it's another one of those things of like if if someone looked at me from above myself, they would say, "Well, this is obviously what you should be doing." But I, you know, I just, I, I don't know. It's hard to kind of think through this stuff when you're 22 or 23. Um, but I always, I always love board games, love even, you know, not just board games, but like, war, you know, hex-based war games. You know, I would take, I would take a game like, uh, somehow I found, found a copy of Eric Lee Smith's The Civil War in the mid 80s, which I don't know how it found its way to my little town in, in Washington State. Uh, but I found it and, you know, played as much as I could, which usually meant, kind of playing it against myself. Um, but then, you know, also sort of hacked the rules. So I built like this helicopter war game that like, you know, using, using the map, which is like, this was the only piece of hex based paper I own, right? Like there was, I, there was nothing else I had that, that was just full of hexes. So I was like, okay, here's some terrain, here's some hexes. I'm going to make some counters and I'm going to make some sheets that keep track of, you know, my helicopters and I'll give them different, you know, different weapons and so forth. And so, you know, I was making, I was making these type of games, you know, when I, when I was very young with or without computers. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I, 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 I sort of saw this as like, this is the obvious thing that I, sh I need to be working on. When did it occur to you that 
that is what you should be working on. Definitely when I was working on Civ, because it just felt like, and I mean, I got really lucky that um, I got really lucky with my first job. I mean, there's just no other way around it um, because when I was applying for jobs in the industry, I applied to a lot of different places. Um, some places that, you know, made RPGs, some places that made sports games. Um, you know, there's lots of stuff and, you know, I've, I'm inter- I was interested in all sorts of games, but, you know, I think that I had a real natural affinity for strategy games. So it was really fortunate that, I mean, I probably would have applied at Fraxis no matter what, just because of Sid Meier, but the finding out that the, the Civ 3 team had basically split from the company, uh, which happened uh, in the winter winter 99 to spring 2000. Um, and that was, that was ex- like exactly when I was leaving college. Uh, like not even, I hadn't even left the summer before that. I, I had one, one extra quarter to go at Stanford. So I basically graduated that Christmas, like right when that stuff was going down, right when it was announced that, you know, Brian Reynolds was leaving Fraxis and then, you know, more and more people were leaving Fraxis. And it's not like they were making a public announcement that, you know, now suddenly we don't have a team anymore to make Civ 3, but, you know, if you follow their company's website, which, you know, sort of listed all the employees and you see them disappear, it was clear something was, you know, something was not right there. Um, it was just perfect timing, you know. I mean, I could have graduated, you know, any other time, and uh, who knows who knows exactly where I ended up. But, you know, not even just to work on a, stra- you know, a strategy game, but, you know, one of the biggest strategy games franchises. And also, like, I... I care about making history games. I don't really have a big passion for fantasy stuff or sci-fi stuff. Um, you know, I like stuff that's grounded in in reality to a certain extent. You know, partially because I just, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any, fic- I don't have any interest in creating fiction. Um, I, I'd be, I think I'd be very bad at it, um, and I just, I just, I just don't want to do that. I like, I like playing around with stuff that people are already familiar with because to me, it's like, it's more like I'm learning about something and that learning comes out through the game right like you know before i before i worked in off world I, I got a bunch of books about potential colonization of mars right and uh, when i was designing civ 4 i was working my way through a, through a big history of the world right and i'm always reading history books so it's just kind of natural as well as be the type of games i work on so yeah grounding stuff in real history i think is kind of fun because it immediately gives the player context for whatever's happening you know whether what's happening makes sense historically or totally doesn't make sense like gandhi nuking you right. um, you have you have immediate context based on your prior knowledge which is cool yeah it's like free yeah exactly it's free context you know like there's so many games that you know the first the first hour they basically spent just trying to like dump all this info on you about this this world and you can't care about something that you don't know about, right? So it it's, takes a very skillful designer to figure out how to like pull you along with some stuff that's familiar somehow, but just enough stuff that's novel that interests you. And that's a tough that's a tough thing to do, I think. Um, but it's it's weird because so many game designers don't try to use stuff that people are familiar with. So yeah, so recently on Designer Notes, I just I did a podcast with Bruce Shelley, and it went it was really really fascinating. He's he's co-designer well sort of co-designer of civ one he wouldn't ever put it that way but he's he helped sid a lot with uh designing the first game and he also worked on Railroad tycoon and he's age of empires and you know a bunch of stuff but at any rate um he talked about that phase when they were working on age of empires um which was in the mid to late 90s rts boom and uh, he said that you know during that time period you know they looked around at the market and they saw that there were 
like 50 different RTSs being made at that time. To a modern audience, it's basically like the MOBA craze that's been happening over the last four or five years, where it's like we've got you know, way too many MOBAs than we could ever possibly need, right? Um, that was the way that was the way things were back in the, the late 90s for RTS games. So there were like maybe 50 RTSs out there being made, and they were the only company making a history-based RTS, huh. right? Every other one was either, you know, sci-fi or fantasy. And of course, they sold millions and millions of copies. You know, they just cleaned yeah. up because they didn't, like, they, I mean, first of all, they made a great game, but they also had literally no competition. Yeah, I, I remember hearing Brian Reynolds speak about how how different uh, the challenge of creating Alpha Centauri was compared to something that was based in in real history because the player has no context for all of the sci-fi stuff that they're making. You know, yep. like you have a you have a predefined sort of like ex, you have an expectation of what's going to happen if you research arrows or archery, yep. but not you know not some sci-fi thing. So yeah, yep. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and you know, I mean, it's it's weird to me that. I'm saying I don't really like fantasy and sci-fi and that like our first game that I'm making is a sci-fi game. Um, but like for me, it's, it's just about as far sci-fi as I would ever get, which is like, well, it's the nearest planet and it's one that people are even talking about starting to colonize now. Whereas I could, you know, someone could totally feasibly make the exact same game that we're making and set it on, you know, a completely imaginary planet with all sorts of imaginary resources. Um, and that may seem you know, a, li- a, a lot, maybe perhaps a little more exotic and interesting. But for me, like as close as I can ground it in our own world, the better. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of it is still really intuitive. It's not like it's using like made up. Um, the combinations kind of make sense. Right. Um, yep. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. A, a little while back, you mentioned that, um, you know, the Firaxis thing, it just sort of happened that the timing was right. Because if I if I looked at your background, and had to guess, I, I would have said, oh, okay, a BA in history and a master's in computer science. He was like, he, he just wanted a job at Firaxis. Right? <laughs> he was planning for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's exactly that thing where in, in retrospect, it looks like I was exactly aiming for that. And I don't, I don't think I would have said that back at the time, um, yeah. but <laughs> it worked out. So what did it feel like um, to actually go to Firaxis? And like, I, I imagine you you knew Firaxis by reputation. You knew Sid Meier by reputation, and you were familiar with the studio and all their games. Um, when you finally went there, how did the studio and and specifically Sid Meier confirm or defy your expectations of what it would be like? Well, I was pretty excited to start there. I seem to remember somehow coming into work the Saturday before my first week, which doesn't quite make sense because I'm not sure I would have got in, but I do remember that happening. <laughs> <laughs> meeting uh, Mike Bazell, one of the artists there, uh, early and just talking to him about you know how excited I was to work at Fraxis. So I think somehow I I had gotten kind of approved before then, but I was you know very very excited to start. And um, when I joined there, they were in the middle of a giant transition. So you know a lot of companies have like you know this is the Blizzard way of doing things, or this is the the Valve way, and maybe the Valve way is there is no Valve way. I'm not sure. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, various companies have some sort of specific philosophy. And at that point, all Firaxis had was, well, this is still Sid's company. So we all tend to be people who gravitate towards the type of games that Sid likes to make, right? That was our, our commonality. And, uh, you know, it didn't, it didn't necessarily have a process in place for, uh, you know, training people and getting them on track. And, you know, we were, we were basically just, we were trying to figure things out and just kind of keep, 
keep Civ three from being a disaster. I think was the uh, the the main the main goal because we from when I joined, you know, we shipped Civ three, you know, less than eighteen months later, and basically at that at that at that point when I joined, the only people. Um, the only programmers working on the project was the the guy who was the the sound programmer before, and the guy who was an intern the last summer, right? And so everyone else they hired was also essentially a bunch of a bunch of new uh, new guys. Uh, I think we hired one other programmer who had uh, Mike Reichreis, who had some uh, he had worked at a, a game company in Pittsburgh, but the rest of us were all basically hired straight out of school. So it was a it was a very high risk period for the company. And, uh, I think that I, you know, it's, it's long ago now, it's long enough now that I have a hard time remembering exactly how that project worked. It just felt like we were, we were always, we were always behind. We were trying to sort of mangle this uh, mangle and use and or unmangle, I guess, uh, this code base that we inherited that was basically like the Alpha Centauri code base. Uh, which was tried, to, which was like trying to be written into the Civ three code base, except there was no one left in the company who worked on Alpha Centauri, so no one really know how that knew how any of the stuff worked. Um, and I remember that I spent just weeks just erasing code, you know, like anything I could find that looked like it wasn't essential, you know, I was just stripping it out of the project. But you know, as as far as for a, a des- like a specific design philosophy, you know, I mean, the one thing that I'd say that you know really got from Sid is he has a, a really high focus on the player experience. Uh, there, there's a quote for him that I always kind of go back to, which is this this concept of um, who's having the fun? Is it the designer? Is it the computer? Or is it the player? Right. It's very easy as a, as a designer to start making a game where either there's a whole lot of complicated algorithms going on where it's the computer having the fu- having the fun, or you're you know often your imaginary design land. Um, coming up with a lot of really weird situations where, where you're going to watch the player play the game and you know what's going on, but the player has no idea what's going on. And like you might be getting enjoy- enjoyment out of you know these surprising ways that all your systems come together, but the player doesn't. You know it's it's all opaque to the player. They don't they don't see the systems working and what and understand what's happened to them. So that's sort of the example of the designer having the fun. You know, or is it the player having the fun? Right? Is it is it all focused primarily on the player understanding what their options are and why they might choose? You know, uh, writing versus you know bronze working versus um, sailing. Right, like making sure that they under, actually, actually understand why they would make those different decisions, as opposed to just kind of you know playing the game, sort of either randomly or guessing or by feel or or whatever. Um, so that that's something you know Sid would um, you know during that period of time he was working on uh, you know dinosaurs and then eventually sim golf, um, but you know he would come in and, you know, look at, and this was true during Civ 3 and Civ 4, you know, you look at the project from time to time. And, um, you know, he, he usually wouldn't have, you know, sort of big sweeping comments of like, this whole thing needs to change or this idea is not going to work or whatever. But, you know, he would, you know, basically just try to ground it. And like, there's this thing going on here and I don't necessarily understand it. Are you sure that um, the player is the one that's having the fun? Um, because a lot of my initial uh, designs for things like uh, culture and resources and religion were all kind of examples of the designer having having the fun. Like they were, uh, you know, I had this very complicated model 
for religion, which was like, okay, if you have cultures that are very close to each other and they're connected by trade networks, so they have roads connections or they're along the coast or they have a river connection, um, and maybe they have, you know, different trade agreements, that means the religions are going to transfer between their cities more likely or, you know, less likely if these are nations that are at war and they're farther apart and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I had this, this very dense, nasty section of code that kind of figured out how religion was going to spread, but a player would need to play the game like 50 times before they kind of truly be able to grasp what's going to happen. And even then, like it's, it's fairly random, right? So like, are they really getting something out of the experience? Um, and that, that was definitely a, the, a, the type of thing where, you know, Sid would be, you know, would say like, you know, I don't really see what's happening here. You need to make this more, um, you need this more straightforward. And so that's how we iterated to like, well, let's just create a missionary unit. You know, let's just have it so that, the spread of religion is is player driven. You know, it's about the player making the decision, not something complicated going on inside the inside the computers. So Jake Solomon was the lead designer on XCOM, and he's still at Firaxis. And I've heard him, mm-hmm. I've heard him say the same thing from Sid, who's having fun. Uh, he, right. he must be a he must be a highly quotable guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has a few he has a few phrases that really kind of stick stick in your mind. Um, and he's also, he's consistent. I mean, he's been, I mean, he had a full career before I ever met him. Right. I yeah. mean, it's astonishing the amount of work he's done. Uh, and he's still working, you know, games like Civ Rev or, um, you know, his, his recent, you know, Ace Patrol or the Starships games, like, um, people probably think that, okay, he probably, they, they do have a sense that, um, you know, unlike, some, you know, various other, you know, really long-term veterans of the industry, they, they have a sense that, He's probably still design. He's probably still designing these games. He's not just designing these games. He's programming these games. Um, Civ Rev. He wrote all of the game code for that game, um, and probably a lot of the other code as well. Um, he was. He's always, you know, sort of notorious for like getting his hands into the graphics, you know, the graphics section and the UI section, and you know, just moving stuff around because he has a very specific idea of exactly how he wants something something to work. Um, so. When when you see someone who works like that, you're gonna you know you're gonna pay attention, and you know they. He, you know, he's, he's seen basically, he's seen basically everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just my perception. Maybe this isn't actually true, but it seems like Firaxis is rare in its uh, stability. You know, like people like you have worked there for a really long time, like seven years. Other people have been there for like over 10 years. And um, is there something unique about the culture or management of Firaxis that, that allows it to kind of retain its stability or is it just that they keep making successful titles? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, for example, Jake, Jake's been there for 15 years, actually probably right about exactly 15. Uh, we actually, we actually met like in the elevator up, like during our first week there. Um, he, uh, is a good example of someone who just, he just loves being at Fraxis, you know, um, he, he loves the way it works. He loves the way it works there. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other people who have been there for, you know, over 10 years. And, um, I mean, I think, I think what helps is that inside of Fraxis, they're very clear about the types of games that they make. Um, you could say it's strategy games, but it's, it's, what it's more like is it's, you know, these are, these are system driven games that are based around the player, right? And and beyond that, it also is a place that values um, values designers who can code, right? Uh, if if Fraxis has, has a weakness, in fact, I'd say it's that they have a hard time integrating designers who can't code, which is 
kind of the opposite issue that most uh, most game developers have or most game companies have in that um, you know oftentimes people get kind of pigeonholed like you're an artist you're a programmer you're a designer and you just go with that um, at Fraxis there's kind of an expectation that whoever is designing you know the next Civ game or the next whatever game is going to be sort of writing the game code themselves um, and uh, sometimes it's hard to find the people capable of doing that but um, if you if that's the type of thing that works for you, uh, it's it's a great place to be. Um, and it's also interesting that I'd say that the growth of the uh, you know the indie movement, indie games. I mean, that's th- those those games are very much typically built around the concept of the designer programmer. Uh, means that it's a much more accepted idea nowadays. So I don't know if that puts Fraxis ahead of the curve or it's just that's just the wrong way of looking at it. I, I don't know, but. Um, you know, back back when I was at Fraxis, it felt like it was one of the few places in the industry where that you know like the kind of having a designer programmer made made sense. Um, where nowadays it's it's kind of very common, um, but you know it's it's clear that's always been sort of a priority there. That's interesting. I wonder if that trickles down because I mean that describes Sid, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean that's it's because that's the way he works. So um, you know the company the company is not going to work two different ways like the projects that have Sid and the projects that don't. That don't have Sid, um, although there is there is kind of an kind of an issue like that. I mean, he is still um, he works differently from um, you know, sort of uh, programmers who've come up more more recently. Um, so you know, he does have kind of a very different style, but he's still a pro. You know, he's still a programmer as are you know most of the other uh, designers there, and um, so that's still kind of built into their the way they make games. That um, they're going to start out by prototyping a game, and it's going to work because the person who's going to design the game is just going to start making it, basically. Yeah. Um, can you tell me why you decided to leave Firaxis and uh, and go to Maxis and work on Spore? What your what what the driving factors were behind that decision? Yeah. So um, after Sephora finished, um, I mean, I was very very happy with how Sephora went. I really didn't feel like there was you know anything major that I would have changed about the game. I mean, if I was to make a Civ game again today, I probably would do it very differently. But at the at the time, you know, I felt like I did I did what I want to wanted to with the game. Um, and unfortunately, you know, after maybe a year of you know trying to to pitch some projects inside the company, the only real for for various reasons. I mean, it's a small company, so you can only, you can only work on so many projects at a time. And one of those projects is basically always going to be Civ. Sometimes it's multiple projects that are Civ. Um, at the time, um, my only option was some sort of Civ type project, you know, probably Civ Five, um, and I just there really I, I mean, I could have kind of just hung around and collected a collected a paycheck um, because I and you know, I, I maybe I'm being too hard on myself. I'm sure I could have contributed something to that project, but I didn't I didn't really have you know a bunch of sort of uh, brilliant ideas to contribute to that to that game, and and, and I also felt like I was going to get in the way. Of uh, you know guys like John Schaefer who was you know wanted to, wanted to lead that project and wanted to do stuff that I probably would have disagreed with, um, and uh, just because we're different designers like anyone right everyone who designs Civ kind of wants to take it in their own specific way and you know I don't know how useful it would have been would have been to have me around you know telling him like oh that idea is not going to work even if you know maybe it will work or he just has a different criteria for what you know it means for the, that idea to work or not. Yeah. So until you went to Maxis, uh, Firaxis was the only studio that you'd worked at. How mm-hmm. 
different did you find the culture at Max's? Yeah, so that was that was that was fun to kind of like experience a completely different environment. Um, Max's was really interesting. I mean, it. I should clarify, like this is the Emeryville office of Maxis, which is kind of the one that at that point was kind of like Will Wright's satellite office um, that, you know, previously there was um, uh, Maxis had a, had a giant office in uh, the East Bay, which, you know, made the Sims games and, you know, basically everything else Maxis oriented. And at some point, yeah, basically shut that down and move everybody to the west, you know, west side of the bay, to the peninsula, um, to you know, Redwood Shores, but they left kind of this small group behind with Will, and that's the group that built the early prototypes for Spore, and then eventually they started hiring more and more people to you know, staff up the project until by the time I joined, there was probably 60, 70, 80 people there. And first of all, the caliber of people there was incredible because, of course, Spore um, you know, got a tremendous amount of attention you know, after the announcement, so you know, you know, a lot of you know, really smart, creative people wanted to work on the project, so it was very easy to hire, to hire the best people for it. Um, so that that made that that group very interesting. Um, it, you know, it 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 was also still a an EA studio in the sense that they had sort of an EA process. They had the concept of a development director and a producer, which were kind of two separate production roles of which we kind of had neither at Fraxis. I mean, we did have producers at Fraxis, but kind of like the minimum necessary to, to make a project work. Whereas, um, you know, at Maxis, it was like basically each level of the game, you know, the cell, the creature, the tribe, the sieve, the space had at least one producer. And then there were development directors who sat kind of on top of them. So there was a lot, a lot more planning going on. But at the same time, it was kind of tricky because planning for what? Spore was an incredibly uh, experimental project. And what I, I think of when I saw a lot was there was a lot of uh, technology, really, really impressive technology that was built out, even if there wasn't necessarily a design in place to do something with that technology. Like, you know, on the Civ level, we had this incredible technology for you know, these round planets, you know, that you could scroll around and zoom in and out. And um, I can tell you, it's not, it's not trivial to do that from an engineering point of view. It's, it's, there's a reason why Civ is just a flat map of squares or hexes, right? And so it's very hard to do that. But you know what? From a game design point of view, a, a, a spherical world is not really a plus. Uh, it makes it a lot hard. The player gets lost all the time, right? Because you start you start scrolling north, 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 and then oops, now you've actually gone over the other side. And now you're actually now you're actually going south and you're actually upside down where it used to be. So if you go back left you're in the same place you were but now it's upside down right it's it's really messy to like um you know figure out like get your orientation on a on a spherical world and um i actually went through a lot a long process of i you know i wish i had actually this is one of the times i wish i had a stronger 3d graphical background because i went through this process with the civ um uh, section of spore where i was trying to basically lock the camera of like okay no matter what you're always facing north and you know you can you know you know, the left arrow will move you west, the right arrow will move you east, the down arrow is south, the up arrow is north, and like once you get to the pole, it will just stop. And I think the actual thing that shut that down was the actual maps we had, which um, could be randomly generated, but for various technical reasons that we couldn't change, could not be randomly generated. They could be randomly generated for the space level, but could not be randomly generated for the civ level. The ones that we had and we were going to have to ship with had had stuff on the poles, 
Um, and Iowa said, well, we just need water on the poles. If we put water on the poles, then we can have a camera that goes north-south. Um, but I don't remember the reasons, but basically we couldn't, we couldn't do that. Uh, so, but that's just, that's just like one of the examples that sticks out of my mind of like having this thing, which was a very, very impressive feat technically, but it didn't necessarily make the game, make the game any better. Right. Like it, it was just, it was very unclear what, what specifically we we're supposed to focus on, um, with Spore. I, I had, I wrote a postmortem on my blog about the whole process. And, uh, you know, I think the thing that really hurt the game is that there was kind of a divide within the team of, the people who were uh, more of the old guard of Maxis, which were used to kind of de designing, uh, were used to making sort of games as toys, um, which is totally legitimate. Like that's 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 absolutely fine to to like make games with that type of priority. And then a lot of the new people who were brought on, people like me, who were used to more making. Well, I mean, the, the, sh the way I'm, you can tell us the way I'm going to naturally phrase it without thinking of it shows my. Uh, prejudice used to making games as games, right? Like we think of it as, you know, a game is a, as a start, as a set of rules, as an end state, as a win state, as a loss state. Um, and, you know, there, there was different people, you know, there was kind of different groups within the team that kind of aligned various places on that continuum. But it's, it's really hard to make a game where you're trying to kind of make both of those, try to make both of those things a priority. Um, and I think that was, uh, you know, one thing that really, really hurts Spore. Yeah, I would, I would have to imagine that Will Wright was more on the toy side of that. Is that correct? Well, you know, I think Will looked at the development team as a bit of his own game. Maybe I, I don't know. I think that he was kind of excited at the type of people he was able to bring into the team, and I think he, he, he was almost viewing it as like, I'm going to bring in these people who have all these different interesting backgrounds and influences and uh, priorities for the game and put them together and kind of see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, which sometimes that can work. You know, that can sometimes lead to some really interesting, um, you know, products or art or, or whatever. But in a project like this where you had, you know, so at, you know, by the time I came on board, there were some very serious resource and time issues in terms of like, when is this going to ship? And like, are we... You know, we should get. To, we you know, we got to the point where a lot of the levels are like, well, this is just, we're just going to have to be happy with what we have because there's, you know, there's just no way we can, you know, fundamentally rewrite rewrite some of the stuff. Um, you know, it kind of became, it became sort of problematic. Um, but I think he was he was more open to, you know, not you know, like seeing what the team itself would would come up with. Um, you know, otherwise, I think he would have yeah spent more time you know trying to find people who were more more along the toy side of the side of things. How, how did the team feel about it when it launched? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone kind of has like conflicted feelings about Spore. I mean, I think the project accomplished some really remarkable things. Um, I mean, I think the, the creature editor is straight up just incredible. You know, it's an incredible piece of just straight up software. Um, and, you know, obviously it was part of the, you know, a part of the game where it worked as toy incredibly well. And I'll also say this, like, I think pretty much throughout the whole game, it's a, it's a very, very good game for, um, and <laughs> saying this makes, it seems like a, you know, a put down, but I, I don't, I mean, I'm genuine, especially since I have kids myself now. Um, it's a, it's a remarkable game for kids. You know, if you're, um, 
if you're young enough where your imagination kind of fills in the gaps and you're not really looking for a game to give you resistance or challenge, um, you know, I think it's, it's a great experience. So, you know, if those are some of your priorities, I think that, you know, that, that there's a lot to be proud of with Spore. But at the same time, I think a lot of people kind of look back at that project and kind of wonder if, you know, all, if, if the effort could have been funneled into a more, into a more focused experience, if we could have done more, I, I think we'll rarely have that type of talent concentrated in one place for one game with the amount of resources that it did with a company willing to take such a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if anything, it's like, well, I think we accomplished, accomplished a great deal, but there was also, you know, just perhaps a bit of a missed opportunity, you know, to do, to do much more with the, uh, the, the resources that we did have available to us. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to check out that postmortem you wrote. That sounds really interesting. So you you worked with Will Wright, and Will Wright, um, kind of like Sid Meier, is sort of a legendary figure in game development. Do you remember anything in particular about his design process or any moments with him that have stuck in your mind? Yeah, the funny thing is, yeah, so I've you know had experiences with both Sid and Will, and you know they're kind of this interesting pair in a way because they came from the same you know they came very much from the same era. You know they made both they both made games multiple games that are, you know, just absolute essential parts of the games industry. Right. Um, so they're, they're kind of unique figures in that regard. Um, but in many ways, like, uh, the, the, they also have a lot of interesting contrasts between, between the two of them. You know, when, when Sid works on a project, you know, it's, it's kind of everyone else there is in support. Uh, did I say Sid? When Sid works on a project, yeah. everyone there is kind of in a support role to Sid because Sid is making the core of the game, right? He's right writing the the game rules that are that are in the center, the, the game code that's in the center of everything, right? And so the people working on the UI, the people working on the graphics, the artists, uh, they're all doing stuff to kind of help bring out those, you know, ideas and systems and rules that Sid makes, brings those forth. Whereas with Will, um, he tries to put all the people working on the project into those core roles of you know coming up with the the, the rules and mechanics and the code that's at the center of you know, at least for Spore each of those specific levels, and then he's um, kind of jumping back and forth from you know each different pro- part of the project constantly you know kind of like talking to people and evaluating you know what he thinks of it you know what he thinks of this or thinks of that and he'll give you a lot of suggestions but he's not um, he's not very um, he's not authoritarian authoritative authoritarian about what you have to do he's like well this is this is my this is my view of this you might want to consider this or this or this um, so on and so forth. But, you know, at the end of it, he's not even going to, he, he doesn't even necessarily say, well, you know, ultimately you need to make the decision or, um, or say like, it should be this way. Uh, he kind of just leaves it as kind of like an, an open question. And he's kind of, he's, I think he's essentially trying to, um, you know, challenge you to figure out what's, you know, what's the, you know, how you should interpret what he said and, and, you know, filter that into all the other things that you're, all the other feedback you're getting about your, about your work. So after Spore, after EA, you went to Zynga East and you worked on a persistent social strategy game. Um, And I I don't think that ever got released, did it? Well, it was out there. It was never really advertised. Okay. 
I doubt more than even a handful of people within Electronic Arts even knew that it existed. <laughs> so it was not even advertised inside the company. And uh, it actually had a, a sort of a decent following in Japan for some reason. I, I huh. don't know kind of what happened there. But um, yeah, there was like a few thousand Japanese players who were very dedicated. You would, you know, you could see, I could keep track of how many times they played the game. Some of these people have played it thousands of times and there would be YouTube videos popped up and they would make... They, I, it was a very moddable thing, so they made basically Japanese translations of all the games, and so you know all the videos that are left of it are all in Japanese themselves because they use these Japanese translations, and they would sort of translate the art as well, I guess you would say, in that you know we had like spearmen, there were things like spearmen and archers and something, and they would tra- you know they replaced the art with bunnies, which I don't know if that's a <laughs> Japanese thing or not. It sure seems like a Japanese thing. I, I don't know, but it, it was. It was an interesting experiment. I was just very interested in, well, first of all, kind of getting away from the giant 100-person team because, you know, I saw sort of like, you know, each team I'd worked on in the industry got sort of bigger and bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, I saw the big downsides of that. And I was also really excited in, you know, trying to, um, this was sort of in the honeymoon period of free-to-play back when we didn't know that it would turn out to be so terrible. Um <laughs> And uh, so I was really kind of interested in what what you could do if you're like, well, let's just make the game in a browser and it's free. Anyone can jump in and play the games. And, you know, we'll we'll figure out, you know, various, you know, I had various different ideas of things we could do to make money. But the important thing was like, well, let's just make a great experience for everyone and let's make it open so people can mod the rules. And if they mod the rules, they'll put them up there and people like every game will just be a URL. It'll just be, you know, the site slash a number and that'll be the game and they don't even need to install the mod because if the game they're linked to has the mod it'll just work out automatically and like there's a lot of neat stuff in there <laughs> and i and i use this really unusual um i i wrote it in java using the google web toolkit to, to make a, a website and i'm pretty sure i'm the only person who made a well, one of, I, I think there's a couple other but i must be one of the few people who ever made a game using that thing and uh it kind of worked really well. It was just there was absolutely no place for it inside of EA or way specific way for it to grow. So it was it was just kind of this weird experiment. And I'm I'm you know grateful that they let me do it. Um, but it, I, you know at some point it was kind of like what am I even what am I even doing at this point? I, I, it was uh, it, it was I, I it showed me that um, that you have to have both a plausible design model and a plausible business model for your game before you're going to get some traction, right? Um, Because obviously a free-to-play design could totally work inside a company like EA, but it has to be a different type of project than this kind of like weird lo-fi web browser game that's totally moddable and, you know, is not like, it doesn't really have like a clear path for people to to, to jump into it, right? you know, it's going to look out. It's going to look like something very different. So, which is why, you know, now with Mohawk, you know, we're making. You know, you have to have a viable business model, and so for us, I'm trying to make that viable business model as simple as possible, right? Which is just, we make a game, we have a price, and you buy it, and you, then you play the game. Uh, it doesn't have the crazy upside of free-to-play games where you have. Um, you know, these people putting tens of thousands of dollars into your game and, you know, it's potentially creating the service that's going to create income for you for, you know, two, five, ten, who knows how many years. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, like, if you go that route, 
is also means that you have to uh, accept a lot of compromises on the design side and also staff up the support side in a way that we you know really wouldn't want to do as an, as an indie company. Sure. Um, when you when you first left for Zynga, you did an interview with uh, GamesIndustry.biz. It was called uh, an interview with Soren Johnson, why I left EA for Zynga. And in the interview, you sound really positive and hopeful about both free-to-play and social games. Um, did the experience at Zynga change your perspective, change your optimism about those things? Right. So yeah, so then I was still still kind of in the in the honeymoon period uh, with free-to-play. And although I would say it gets a little more complicated from, than that because at that point, I had already been through Dragon Age Legends, a uh, social game I made at, at EA, you know, which also showed me you know, the positives and the negatives of you know, making free-to-play games. So uh, you know, I was pretty aware of you know, a lot of the, the downsides at the, at the time I joined Zynga, and I was definitely cautious about that move. I was kind of you know, aware that you know, things could potentially go bad. Um, and that's kind of the weird part of the story because things didn't go bad, but at the same time, I was there for less than 18 months. So it's hard to even... Zynga was just a crazy place at that time. That was during the period that they went public. And I I only joined there because basically they told me, like, yes, you make... And by they, I should specifically say, they means um, Brian Reynolds and Tim Train, um, the people who ran um, Zynga East, which is the studio that made Frontierville... Um, and also made uh, City of L2, um, and it was it was you know it was their their group of people. There are a lot of people there who were sort of refugees from big huge games, um, and a lot of those people there are now also at the new big huge games. You know, working on Brian's next Brian and Tim's next title, um, and uh, you know although there's a couple of them working uh, at Mohawk too. Um, but uh, at any rate, um, they told me basically that if you come join Zynga, we'll let you work on. You basically can whatever you want to work on. Come work in our office. We can protect you basically, like as long as you don't have a lot of resources. And I don't because I'm a designer programmer. Um, and beyond that, I had already, you know, I'd already kind of just shown that I was capable of making, uh, you know, this kind of browser-based game. And I actually used the, basically the same technology inside Zynga, you know, writing a game in Java using the Google Web Toolkit. So, you know, I'd shown that I was able to, to build that type of thing on my own. I just needed basically an artist. So I hired uh, Dorian Newcomb, who's, you know, also is, is now the vice president at Moha Games and the art director. And there's a guy, a guy who I've, I've worked with since Civ 3. Um, so, you know, I hired him to come inside Zynga. And then it was, you know, basically the two of us, you know, making this game. And, you know, I told them the type of game I wanted to make. And they said, okay, that sounds fine. Um, and that's just what I did. I just worked on that game for, uh, like I guess 15 months and we were playing it internally for most of that time at the Zynga East office and people were really enjoying it. Um, some of the people uh, outside of the Baltimore office were playing it. Um, so we were playing it kind of like internally on the Zynga network network and uh, it was going great. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was also totally, it was also totally unclear how we could make money off of the game. Um, that was not something that we were really testing out or really thinking about and and beyond that uh you know zynga definitely had a tendency to take a game that was you know kind of working um with one business model and kind of like forcing it into another so i was a little apprehensive about that but in the end it kind of 
it kind of just came to nothing because, I mean, neither good nor, nor bad um, in the sense that uh, eventually Seville 2 didn't work out very well and Zynga decided to shut down the Baltimore office. And we were, I guess, sort of collateral, just collateral damage from that. Um, we didn't really have, uh, you know, there weren't really a lot of people in, in Zynga who had a lot of buy-in to my project. In fact, there were very few people at Zynga who even knew what my project was. Um, and so when the Baltimore studio got shut down, like, you know, we, I was just let go with, with everyone else there. Um, I mean, that was just kind of the end of that. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't really have anything bad to say about my time with the company. They treated me very, very well. And I was never told to do anything uh, specifically with the game I was working on. I was given complete creative control over it. And so it was kind of this weird and, and also very different experience, I presume, from you know most of the people who who uh, worked at Zynga. So I, you know, I, in many ways, my my experiences there, I don't know, are very particularly interesting or relevant to to people who want to understand how how Zynga worked. Sure, it must have been cool for you to work with Brian Reynolds, though. I imagine you knew him pretty well by reputation. I think he left for Axis right as you were joining, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, my the I was. You know, hire to kind of fill in the in the places that of all the people left to to form big huge with him and uh, yeah um, I think Brian had kind of I, I didn't really get to know him much until maybe just at the very end of my time at Fraxis um, but I definitely had a lot of respect for the work that he did so it was it was definitely very cool to get to know him uh, while I was in Baltimore that was uh, definitely one of the highlights of working at Zig East uh, he's a very 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 smart guy. Uh, he has some similarities with with Sid, but he also has some some differences. He's a little more uh, he's a little more for, forward uh, than Sid is, um, and uh, or Sid is not. Uh, Sid is um, he doesn't really seek out, uh, or what's the right way to put this? He's sort of a very peace peaceful person. He doesn't really love conflict. So uh, I think if Sid, if you say something that Sid dis- disagrees with that strongly, he's 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 not necessarily going to say something about it. He's just going to disagree with it basically. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're Brian's a little more direct about like what, how he, what he, what he thinks about specific things, you know, you know, in, inside the game. So when Zynga closed, uh, did you have any idea then that you were going to start Mohawk or, um, did it close and then you were looking for something else? Yeah. So, so when Zynga closed, I mean, I, Wanting to start my own studio, it always seemed to me like something that would be a good, if I could make it work, would be a good option for me. Um, because I feel like, um, you know, I'm able, I'm able to make these prototypes kind of from scratch that can turn into good games. So I don't necessarily need a big infrastructure. I just sort of need, eventually need, um, you know, that core team where, you know, someone can handle the graphics and someone can handle the UI and someone can handle, you know, the basic sort of systems work. And we can kind of make a game, we can make a game from there. And so, like, I felt like I could, um, I could make a game with a small team. Um, and it was kind of a question of the, uh, the business of the industry had a kind to, had a kind of shift before that was really possible. What I mean by that is when I left Fraxis in 2007, I, I suppose Steam existed back then, but I don't. I'm not sure if they even had third-party games on there yet. Um, but for sure, it was not really a thing back then for independent games to be on Steam and for that to be 
a actual way to make your livelihood. Um, I think Xbox Live was had just sort of started up maybe a year or so before that time, but that still was that was also a pretty. It was also kind of unclear what was going to happen with that, um, and that meant dealing, of course, with the the console makers. Um, so there, and you know, this was also also obviously before uh, you know the App Store with the iPhone took off. Um, so there wasn't really a. Um, I suppose that was entirely before the iPhone period, right? Mm-hmm. Hard to get my chronology right, but um, so there wasn't really sort of a viable indie path um, back then. Indie development kind of just meant, you know. <sighs> a few really enterprising souls who would sort of make games um, and just kind of try to sell them through their own website. You know, this is sort of like the Jeff Vogels of the world, uh, Spiderweb software. He makes sort of hardcore RPGs, old school RPGs. And, you know, there were sort of a handful of these people around, but it was, you know, it wasn't enough to say it was actually, uh, you know, there was actually an independent games development community or something like that. Um, And uh, so, you know, when I left for Axis, it's like, well, I'm just I'm going to have to go work for another studio, right? That's that's really my only option, um, because I don't. Well, I'm also not necessarily a huge risk taker in the sense of like I'm just gonna okay, I'm just gonna like pare down my life, get rid of all expenses, and figure out a way to make you know games on my own. I wasn't I wasn't interested in doing that. Um, you know, I went to work for EA, and then I went to work, and then I went to work for Zynga for a little bit. But at the same time, I was obviously noticing that you know independent development had become actually feasible. Um, so the question was really just how to do that. Um, and uh, you know, I think I would have presumably, as long as I think as as long as I've been able to work on what I wanted to, I would have probably stayed at Zynga for quite a while because I, you know they were letting me do exactly what I wanted to do. But uh, it's probably very fortunate for me that they decided to shut Baltimore down when they did, shut Zynga East down when they did, because um, at that point, it, you know, that seemed like the, the obvious time, like that's to, to get into it. I would either need to, you know, commit to some other studio or, you know, this is, this is probably my best, you know, this is probably my best opportunity right now to, to go for it. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, there were a number of opportunities, but Stardock was seemed far and away the best one because, you know, we're just aligned very closely in terms of, of you know how much we value strategy games and how connected we are to the strategy game audience and community. Um, I mean that strategy games are what they care about making, and you know those are the game type of games. I, those are the type of games they want to publish, and those are the games I kind of like to make. And uh, Brad and I had gotten to know each other a, a few years before. Um, I'd given him some just some, some basic feedback on. Don't remember if it was Gauss of One or Gauss of Two, um, but uh, you know we got to get to know and respect each other a little bit. And so, you know, when Zynga shut down, you know, I pitched him on my basic idea for Offworld, and um, you know, he immediately said he thought the idea was great, um, and uh, which is is wonderful because it's not really an easy pitch. You know, like yeah. most publishers, you go to them and like, yes, yeah, so I want to make a you know RTS that has no units, has no combat. And is about business. It kind of looks like a spreadsheet, you know. That's not, um, you know, that's not really what they want to hear, um, you know. And it's also the type of idea you kind of need if you're a small studio because, you know, we're. N- it would be stupid for us to to say like, yeah, we're going to make a sci-fi RTS that is about combat because, you know, why would why would they buy our RTS instead of StarCraft, right? You know, like it's there. There's there's just that that's already been done. And there's things that are always going to be able to do it better than we can. So you know, we've got to do something different. Sure. You've had a lot of firsthand experience, you know, being a designer programmer, actually getting in there and making games. 
Um, what sort of different challenges have you encountered um, in founding a studio and being a CEO? You know, you talk to people who sort of found their own studio and they complain that they, you know, half their time they spend not actually developing the game. And that, that hasn't been true for me at all. I actually spend uh, definitely the majority of my time uh, working on the game. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm now a boss. So, you know, I have, you know, I have to, you know, deal with issues of, um, you know, hiring and career management and stuff like that. But um, I think I, I, you know, to be, to be direct, like I, we're still a young company. So I think I still have, you know, a lot to, a lot to learn in that regard. Most, most of the people that we've hired so far are people that we'd already worked with and are long-term veterans of the industry. So that part has gone pretty smoothly. Um, but, you know, I, I probably will have a more, uh, a more detailed answer to that five years down the road. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty awesome situation you have right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's been really nice. We're um, I feel fortunate. Everything kind of came together in the right way at the right time. Um, I'd like to switch gears now and kind of be a little bit reflective about the earlier parts of your career. Uh, I like to ask this question of um, experienced experienced people like yourself. Um, if you if you could talk to yourself back at the start of Firaxis and give yourself some advice um, or mentoring, what would you what would you say to the young Soren Johnson who was just starting? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I probably would have said to be patient. I think that, you know, I had some sort of great experiences with Civ 3 and Civ 4. Um, and those, those turned out to be really, really great projects to work on. Um, and then, you know, I, um, you know, I think I had a sort of a long period of frustration after that. Um, uh, just in terms of, you know, a lot of the uh, projects I worked on were not really true to, you know, the, the, the games that um, were really true to like exactly how I wanted to make games for whatever reason. And, that, and that's, you know, that's pretty common in the industry. Um, but I think throughout that period of time, you know, I was kind of like constantly anxious about figuring out a way to, to make it work. And I guess that makes sense. But, you know, now it, you know, assuming we can make this work, it sort of has all sort of worked out in the end. And, you know, I mean, there's times when I wonder if I should, if, like, for example, to be sort of more direct about it, like there's times when I wonder if I should have just stayed around at Fraxis a little bit longer because, you know, it was a, it was a good company. And, you know, I mean, it, you know, they, they just make strategy games. So I definitely would have, you know, had to roll there one way or another. Um, you know, understanding that, you know, there are, there may be times when the specific thing that you can do doesn't necessarily match up with where your company is at, but that's okay. You can, you know, those, those years will come and those years will go. Now, and, and from a design perspective, for sure, what I would tell myself, and I kind of alluded to some of this stuff earlier, is um, every, almost every design you come up with, by the time you're done with it, the, the working version, assuming that you've actually turned it into an idea that is fun, it is work, and does work. The, the working version is going to be far, far simpler than the initial idea that you came up with in your head. That when you sort of start to design ideas in your imagination, you know, you first, you know, if one idea pops in your head and then you start thinking of all the, all the crazy different things you can do with it and X leads to Y and Y leads to Z and all, you know, all this fun stuff you're imagining in your head. It, it's, it's that phase that Sid talks about where it's the designer having fun. 
and I've done this so many times where I get all these ideas and then I, you know, code them all up and then it just, it just kind of like, it's just kind of a mess. And then, then the actual design work is basically cutting all that stuff away down to like the actual simple idea that itself is going to be fun because when you're playing the game, you can actually watch it. It's simple enough that you can actually visualize it. There's a way to show it to the player on the screen. It could be that that's just the inevitable. That's that's the way it is for to to design games, or at least for me, to just you know you have to kind of over design it first and then cut it down to the the fun part. But um, you know it it certainly would be better to start with the philosophy of you know trying to aim for simplicity first. What about purely in programming? Uh, what mistakes did you make, um, like technically as a young programmer, that you had to you know learn things the hard way? Um. I mean, I definitely will say that I've learned a number of times not to worry too much about performance or optimization while I'm still in prototype or design phase. Um, that as much as possible now when I have a design idea and I try to you know, code it up, I will generally speaking take a brute force approach um, because it's sort of the most, most simplest and straightforward and it's also obvious later when you come to back to that code how it how it works, and in, in in essence, you're sort of writing the code knowing that you're probably going to come back to change it later. So you know you don't want to write it in a way where it's reliant on some other code somewhere else in the project doing something right. Like if you're if there's some variable and it needs to be updated every time through the game update loop, right? And um, you're like, well, this is kind of a waste, like because half of the time this this variable never changes. Uh, so you're like, okay, well, let's go ahead and, and cache this variable, right? And we know that somewhere else in the code, there's this other function that sort of decides when or when not to, you know, ref you know refresh this variable, right? But, and that's all well and good. That's sort of a standard technique right there. But, you know, three or four months later, you may forget exactly how that system worked, right? And so if you have to, um, if, if eventually something you do kind of like, you know, erases or changes the code that controls when that variable gets uh, gets updated or, or refreshed, um, then that variable may no longer be accurate, but you're not going to necessarily realize that, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so... It's better to do those optimizations after, first of all, I mean, often like you're just wrong about what type of stuff needs to be optimized, but it's also better to do the optimizations, you know, after, after, you know, you're pretty sure that the game design is not going to change itself. And there's a similar rule, I would say, for the AI, for sure, um, that it can be a real waste of time to spend much time on an AI before you're, you're really, really sure about, you know, how the game rules are. Right, or because you can spend time making sure the AI solves this one specific problem, and then later on you can decide, well, this specific rule is not even fun. I'm just going to take it out of the game. So then that AI is now, you know, all, all that time you spent is, is wasted, and beyond that, you're probably going to have to kind of rewrite a lot of those sections just to pull that code out of there. So you want to make sure your game design is as far along as possible before you spend time working on the AI. Which is one of the reasons why it's very nice to work on multiplayer games. Like I often don't know how you do it if you're making a game that's purely a single player. Um, and you know, oftentimes people are like, well, like 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 Civ, for example, like Civ Four. It's like, well, no, actually, we built Civ Four initially as a multiplayer game, 
Um, very, very early in the project, we were playing multiplayer games of Civ 4, well before there was any AI. So we would do it every one day, every week. I think it was every Wednesday or something. We would we would all hang around after work and play a four or five hour game of Civ 4. And so we would immediately get a, get a sense of like how the game rules are working and whether the numbers were right and whether combat was any fun or, you know, we would try out all the ideas. And I was able to learn about the game without needing to spend the time to work on an AI to test it out with. Whereas if you're making a game that's just 100% single player, like you can have um, design ideas and you can you can try them out, but you're not really going to know whether they're fun until there's an opponent on the other side, which means you have to write an AI. Um, so then you write an AI, and then you discover it's not fun. So then you change the rules, and then you have to rewrite the AI. Um, that's a that's a that can be a very wasteful process. Similarly, I, I'm sure it's hard to know exactly how how an audience is going to use a mechanic until it gets into their hands. Um, you released Operal Training Company on early access. So I'm curious what you've learned about the design of the game um, from from seeing people play it that you didn't anticipate. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I've all, as soon as I heard about early access, I thought, wow, that sounds fantastic. I'm so glad there's infrastructure for that. Like We tried to do something like this for Civ 4 where we had like this private group of people, maybe 100, 150 people that we brought in from our, our forums to play Civ 4 like really early, like a year and a half before we released, like during the first half of the project. Um, and that was all private stuff. It was never public at all. But it was hugely important to making that game work. And early access is just so much better than that because it's all it's all public. There's infrastructure for it. Um, you know, it's very easy to do. And so yeah, within immediately within you know the first month, we saw we started to see all sorts of behaviors uh, that we didn't necessarily anticipate. So you know, immediately there were some sort of basic gameplay changes we had to make. Like um, you know, one common thing people would do is they would build five or six hacker arrays and they would short uh, one resource. Uh, all at the same time, so you'd have like six, I don't know, six steel shortages, and suddenly the price of steel would hit a thousand dollars, and like the one player who stocked up on a thousand steel would make a million dollars, and the game would be over basically. Um, or uh, so that I mean that's a very dramatic example, but there's simpler things, just like um, you know the robotics needed a little bit of a boost, so it gave them the specific bonus that if you put a robotic steel mill next to a robotic metal mine, it gets a it gets an adjacency bonus um, and expansive. Was also, you know, just getting among the top players. They were all playing expansive, and the reason was is they're figuring out that, you know, expansive. Uh, you know, each each time you level up an expansive colony, you get an extra claim. Um, but it was also cheaper to upgrade an expansive colony than anyone else because they require half as much steel for their buildings and for their upgrades. Sorry, I said colony. I meant HQ. Um, HQ used to be called Colony, and then we moved the terminology around, so sometimes I, I say the wrong thing. But um, every time you, you upgrade an expansive HQ, you get an extra claim. But it, in the version that we shipped under the Axis, it costs half as much steel as everyone else does to upgrade an expansive HQ. So you see there's kind of a positive feedback loop there, right? Like when they upgrade, they get something something powerful, which makes it, which makes it even easier to upgrade, which was always already easier to begin with. So you would see expansion players get to level four or five before anyone else was uh, to level three, you know, or even two. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it was clear we had to do something about that. So we, you know, we just took away the, the upgrade bonus for expansive. They still can build buildings cheap. They don't still, they still need less steel for their buildings, but uh, not for their actual uh, headquarters itself. Um, and then just, just also is just really fascinating to see, you know, we played the game a lot internally. 
know, we would play the game multiple times a week, sometimes multiple times a day. So, you know, we had a lot of experience with the game. We had a bunch of people playing it, trying out different strategies. But, you know, immediately after release, we started seeing people do things we didn't anticipate, you know, like grabbing multiple aluminum mines before they even hit level two, or especially they would build all of their, typically for us, when we, um, when we're looking to build our power plants, usually spend some time trying to find the best spot for them because, you know, basically solar power works better at higher elevations and wind power works better on cliffs and stuff. Um, but what we would see is people would find their headquarters and they would just plop down solar panel right next to it. They didn't really care whether they were putting it in a good location to produce the most power. What they cared about was because it was still next to their headquarters, they could delete it later in the game if power dropped a dollar and put something else there. Whereas if instead we put our power way off on the other side of the map on this great location for power, but if power you know dropped to a dollar, you know we've wasted our claim on this spot that we can't use for anything else. Um, and you know, in, in retrospect, that does actually kind of seem kind of obvious, but you know we missed it, and um, it's just the type of thing that every team is going to miss if they're only relying on their their own their own team members to to play and balance and test their games. So. Like that's why it's hugely important, especially for a game like a competitive RTS, to you know get exposed to real players before you know it's sort of the final ship. Yeah, I follow you on Twitter, and a little while ago you posted it was like a Steam early access review from this guy who said, uh, "Yeah, I've played a bit of Offworld," and you can see <laughs> on his post it was like three hundred hours. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was fun to see. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you can play test internally a lot, but not that much probably. No, no. <laughs> That would be hard. Yeah. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about stuff that Sid will say repeatedly. You know, he's got he's got advice that he gives um, over and over because it's good advice and people need to hear it. Um, and you you kind of talk about uh, different things that Sid will say, different different pieces of advice that he gives uh, in a piece on your blog called Sid's Rules. Um, I can't remember if if who's having fun was on there, but it, it would have fit. It's the type of thing in that post. Right. Um, have Have you now that you are CEO and creative director of Mohawk? Do you find yourself repeating similar things to people? Do you have uh, Soren's rules? Um. Yeah, I mean that. I mean the one I brought up is certainly one I bring up a lot with people. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if I have it, if I've I have my own codified. Uh, well, I do have a couple actually. One one thing I often will say is, uh, and I I think I wrote a column on this as well is. Um, water finds a crack, um, which is a, a term I actually got from a guy named uh, Bob Thomas, uh, known as Syrian online, uh, who helped me out with the design of CIF4. Um, he wrote a lot of map scripts. And what he meant by that was that um, players are going to find um, the hole in your design, right? It's just a matter of time till, you know, they, you know, if there, if there is some sort of, um, you know, a little hole, hole or exploit or especially in a turn-based game, if there is something a player can do, um, even if it takes them more time to play the game, if there's some just this totally mind-numbing, boring thing that they can do every turn to eke out a five percent, you know, uh, advantage of you know growing faster or building their buildings faster, or whatever, they're going to do it. And so, you know, you have to watch out for that type of stuff because um, it essentially it ruins it ruins the game. That people are ruining the game for themselves. By trying to play the game optimally, so you have to you have to really watch out for that type of stuff. Yeah, that's that's interesting because back when you were working on Civ three and Civ four, there was really no way of identifying that stuff 
uh, before release like you can with off-world trading company and early access. Yeah, that's right. Like a lot of the patches for Civ 3 and Civ 4 were to address these type of issues. Like one I remember from Civ 3 specifically was lumberjacking, which was this concept of you would plant a forest and then you would um, chop down the forest, which would give you a production bonus. Actually, this might have been in Civ 4. It's hard to kind of sometimes all blurs together. Um, and I think if you had multiple workers on the same tile, they would they would all contribute to making the task work faster. Right. So if you had enough workers, if you had, say, had five workers on a tile, you could basically plant a forest in one turn and then chop it down the next turn. So then basically the optimal strategy became, well, we need as many workers as possible, put them on every tile, plant a forest every turn, harvest it every turn or every other turn, and then just, you know, your cities could grow at this amazing speed. Right. And so that was, you know, that was not what we, you know, that was not the, the purpose of the feature. Right. And, um, I think that must have been Civ 3, because I think that was, I don't think we even had planting forests in Civ 4, but I think we basically we just made the simple change that said that you could only ever get that resource bonus one time from a tile, right? So either when you chop down the initial forest or the first time you chopped down the planted one, which meant that like the basic meat of the rule was still there, but just this one kind of like bizarre use of it was gone. So how, how have you personally felt about the response to Offworld so far? Um, well, it's been, uh, it's been really fun to see. Um, I mean, so far it seems like there, there's an active, uh, multiplayer community. Um, you know, there's people, people playing all the time throughout the day. Um, and, uh, the early impressions we've seen from various websites, websites, you know, places like Rock, Paper, Shotgun and PC Gamer and, and whatnot have all been, you know, really positive. You know, we, we although this is perhaps something to be worried about, but we usually hear is like, wow, I really didn't expect to like this game, but I really love it, you know? And it's like, well, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully people will, you know, they, they, they're paid to write about the game. So that's why they, you know, that's why they tried it. So, you know, I am a little concerned about whether people are going to, you know, buy an uh, economic RTS, but the people who do buy it, you know, the, the, this thing we hear very, just all the time is like, wow, this game is really fresh. It's really new. I've never played anything like it. Um, it's just different. And that's, that's what we're aiming for. You know, we're, we're people who love RTS games, but we've just gotten really tired of military based RTSs because they, they tend to be kind of like the, the same type of game. So it's been really, it's really nice to see that type of, uh, that type of response. Um, and actually the, I, I think I just wrote this about this on my blog yesterday, but the, um, the thing that's been surprising me the most about off world is that, um, my wife has gotten really addicted to it. Um, like it's been, um, a big surprise. She's not, she's not a gamer. Like she had never, the only other PC game she'd ever played before was civilization four. Um, because you know, she, I made it, so she wanted to try it and uh, she liked it and she played it every, every few months or so. Um, but she, I wouldn't say she was ever addicted to it. Um, whereas, uh, with off world, I kind of showed her how to play it shortly after right, right, right around release. Um, and then suddenly I was noticing she was, she was playing it when I was away from the house and at night she was like, Hey, can we, I was like, do we want to watch what do I was like, do you want to watch house of cards? And she's like, mm, how about we play off world? <laughs> like, All right. And, and that she wasn't playing single player. She was, or even like team based, you know, against the computer. Like she wanted to get online and play multiplayer games against people that are out there. And, and not just that, like she kind of figured out who the best players were. And so we would play against, you know, the, the currently very, very top players, which meant, <laughs> You know, I was now no longer, I mean, I, I now barely ever win a game um, because, you know, these guys are very, very good. Um, but yeah, she's logged like 160 some games 
in the 40 days since we've released. So she averages like four multiplayer games a day and she wins oh, nice. quite a few of them. And um, I, I, I just, I don't know really what to say because I never, I just didn't see that happening. Um, I mean, I guess I'm hoping that it is the reason why I wanted to make Offworld in, in the first place, which is like this, by taking, by moving away from combat, you know, it kind of broadens the potential appeal of the game in a way because it's not, you know, it's not about hurting someone potentially. It's it's more about a constructive thing of like you're building something up that gets better and better and better. Um, and, but also at the same time, because you're not controlling units, you don't have, you're not fighting the interface, right? Like, um, you, know, she, you know, she's actually able to play, she actually played most of her games using the trackpad, um, which, you know, it would be unthinkable to play a game like StarCraft using a trackpad, yeah. you know? Like, just forget about it. Um, but, you know, I mean, you record in, over the course of a game of Offworld, like, you probably claim, you know, the game might last 30 minutes, and you might claim 15 to 20 tiles, right? So basically, you're essentially making, you're building one building every minute and a half, something like that, right? On, on average. So, you know, there isn't necessarily a huge action per minute issue. And, uh, and you know, so that, that part has, has really worked out well for her. Yeah, because there are no units, the pace of the micro is is really different. Mm -hmm. We see. Yeah, I mean, you do need to spend time paying attention to the market. You can get um, you can get a lot of advantage by watching um, the prices go up and the prices go down. And you know, if you buy when it's low or sell when it's high, you can get you can get a pretty big advantage. And so you do. You know, it's not you definitely. It's definitely not a game where you can sit back. You know, people will say it's pretty fast paced, but I think that they're they're sort of capable of. There isn't a dexterity issue. They're capable of making the actions that they want to make. It's just a question of are they making the right decisions. Um, and uh, you know, it's um, another way you could look at it is you know, builders are popular. You know, games like Farmville and and SimCity and you know, Railroad Tycoon and games like that. And this is just kind of like like you know, this is a, a version of that, but it's competitive. You know, it's like it's, it gets it has a sense of adrenaline rush to it, right? Yeah. Um, like those games always have a real long format, you know, like a game of SimCity is going to be like eight, nine, 10 hours or, you know, the, you know, sort of the persistent builders like Farmville, they, they don't have an end, right? Like we were very clear about with our game, like it had to have a very specific session length. It couldn't be longer than half an hour. And that's because it needed to have this finished, complete, compact experience. It can't be longer than half an hour for multiplayer. Otherwise it just, it, it would only be like, a multiplayer game in theory, right? If you go longer than that, then you're, you're only talking about your real diehards who are willing to play it. It's, it's basically a single player first that does technically work as a multiplayer game, right? So it had to be half an hour to make it work in, in multiplayer. But then also the, the nice side about that is the shorter, shorter games have, um, have a nice, a nice feel to them where you're not, you're not, um, it's, it's a lot, it's more okay to lose, right? Yeah. Like the shorter a game is, I mean, this, you know, this is like one of the, the clear revelations from something like Super Meat Boy, right? Is that, you know, if you, if you allow people to play games in really short segments, then you can kind of do all sorts of crazy things to them because, um, you know, when you play a game of Civ, once you have a game going, you know, 20 hours in, you can't have crazy RAM events happening near the end of the game that invalidate everything happened that happened for the last 20 hours. Um, whereas you have sort of a lot more design flexibility if you're fitting a game into a short period of time. 
Um, I, I mean, I, I should say that you know, long form ga- games are great too. They're just kind of like a different, different kind of design space. Sure, that's a good way to characterize the difference in the micro. What you said that there is no, there's not that challenge of dexterity of like frantically selecting units while they're going somewhere or something. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, cool. It's gotten great previews that I've read. Um, it's gotten the wife seal of approval. Um, <laughs> yep. I certainly enjoy playing it, and I'm I'm totally looking forward to more updates and whatever Mohawk does in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thanks a lot for being here today, Soren. Appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Music and audio engineering was provided by Michael Ibrahim. For more of Michael's music, please go to CarbonCityLights.com. If you enjoyed this interview, be sure to subscribe and to check out MemoryLeakInterviews.com. MemoryLeak currently does not accept donations, but if you'd like to support the podcast, please tell a friend, rate the show on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or follow the MemoryLeak Twitter account. 